I'd like to begin this morning with a question to you. What discourages you? What are the things that keep you up at night worrying about and thinking about? Have you ever had the sensation that God was no longer there? Or the feeling like, or ask God, where are you? Why are you not answering my prayers? Why are you not giving me the good life that I want to have? What discourages you? You know, when we get in seasons like that, we often wonder, has God failed? Has God failed? Has he failed us? You know, you look and see the the church persecuted in so many countries in in this world. Has God failed? Has he abandoned his people? You might find yourself in a work situation where it's once it was neutral to be a Christian, but now it's actually a negative thing. You find yourself being portrayed as the enemy. Has God failed? Has he abandoned you? Or maybe the, a related question, can God do anything about it? Or are we really just left to, uh, to be oppressed by the oppressors of the world. You know, and in seasons like that, we need our faith restored, right? We need restored faith and we need restored hope because, of course, God has not failed and he has not left us and he is not without the power to will and to work according to his good pleasure But sometimes we need to have our faith in God restored, our hope restored. Maybe you're in that season right now and you need a restoration of faith and of hope. Well, that's what the book of Kings was written for as well, to restore faith and to restore hope in the people of God. Kings was written in the days of Judah's exile. They have been swept away. Jerusalem and the temple have been destroyed. All of the treasures of Solomon taken captive. And they're wondering, has God failed? Are the gods of the nations stronger than the God of Israel? And the book of Kings is written to restore faith in, as I've titled the sermon today, the King of Kings. The King of Kings. Of Kings. Please turn to page seven of your worship folder and I'll walk you through a brief overview of Kings before we dive into the book today. Here on page seven of the worship folder, I've given you a summary of the melodic line. Has God failed? That is the question the exiles in Babylon were asking. The book of Kings is written to restore the faith of God's people in the Lord, Yahweh, the King of Kings. Israel may have rejected the Lord as king, but he still sits on his throne. Everything that happened to Israel and Judah was according to the Lord's sovereign will expressed by his covenant in Moab. Israel broke the covenant again and again. So God made good on his warnings and expelled his people from the land. But this was all according to the plan, which is also the reason for hope. 
while the Lord's covenant faithfulness brought the downfall of Israel and Judah, that same faithfulness kept a king on David's throne. Has God failed? By no means. Nothing can stop him. He is the king of nature and the king of nations. And today we are in a new season of waiting. The Lord continues to work out his plan of salvation in Christ. And we are a part of that plan. And while we live in days of darkness, we wait in faith and hope for our Lord's second coming when the King of Kings shall return and the kingdom of the world shall be the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. So that's a brief overview of Kings and I encourage you to read those proof texts and we'll cover a lot of them today in in the message. Before we start in, um, just let's look quickly at the literary structure and brief outline. The book of Kings is divided by the history of the kings from Solomon and still the united monarchy to the days of the divided monarchy of Judah and Israel. And then it ends with the falls of Israel and Judah being expelled once and for all from the land. Some other structural markers that are important to note as you study kings is the, the statement for every king of whether they did right or did evil in the sight of the Lord. And most of them did evil in the sight of the Lord, the vast majority. And then also note, when you read kings, the, the frequent reference of the Lord's activity in the affairs of men on earth, that the Lord is the one willing and working throughout the book of Kings. And one of the dominant things the writer of Kings wants us to know is that God is in control of everything that happened to Israel. In fact, God was the cause and God was the one who even used pagan kings to punish his people and to deal with them when they broke covenant with him. And we'll see that God is the Lord of nature He uses all sorts of natural things to bring about his will. And he's also the Lord of nations in that he is the one. He will even make kings, anoint kings of other nations through the prophets. And he's also the one that uses those nations to deal with Israel and Judah as well. So if I were to give like one word or one phrase, let's say one phrase that is our hope in kings, it is the sovereignty of God is the sovereignty of God as he works according to his covenant warnings and his covenant promises. It's the sovereignty of God. And I hope you see that today and find hope in the sovereign Lord therein. So let's dive in and walk through the book of Kings together this morning. I'm not going to give you like two or three points like I normally do. Rather today, I'm just going to take you down a thought process. Uh, as we work through the book of Kings together. Okay, so that's that will be the direction of the, the message this morning. So we begin by uh, the concern of the, the exiles in Babylon. Has God failed? Has God failed? Put yourself in the shoes of uh, the Judeans who were, were exiled. What, what were the things that they saw? For one thing, they saw a series of kings come against Judah and slowly take away all of their people and all of their possessions. And of course, this happened after the northern ten tribes were wiped away as well. 
And they're sitting there wondering, has God failed them? They witnessed the destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of the Temple of Solomon. In other words, they witnessed the downfall of everything that they had hoped for, for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, uh, worshiping, being with God's people in God's place under God's rule. But they rejected that rule and they saw everything that they were clinging so tightly to taken away from them. They saw the eyes of the last king put out after all of his sons were slaughtered. They were taken by fish hooks. The, the, both the Assyrians and the Babylonians were brutal in their treatment of their captors, of cutting off the hands of their, of their captors, taking them um, in exile by fish hooks in their mouth, um, brutally executing many to intimidate them. Um, you know, the king of Assyria, who's going to take down the, uh, the Israelites later in this book, he, he literally wallpapered his palace with the skins of his enemies. The, this, is, this is the kind of thing happening in these days. And so I think if we were in their shoes, we might well wonder, has God failed us? Where is God? And you can hear the taunts of the nations, how the, the God of Babylon is, is superior to all the gods of, of the earth as the Babylonian Empire uh, ruled at that time. I mean, and we can think of those kinds of taunts that we hear even today. You know? So we put ourselves in the shoes of the readers as we begin to read Kings. And I, and I encourage you, whenever you read a book in the Bible, try to understand the time in which it's written, because that will help you hear the message more clearly and more powerfully. As we, re, as we come to Kings, Kings is actually the last book in what in the Hebrew canon they called the former prophets. So in, uh, in the Hebrew ordering of the, of the Bible, we have Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings. Four books. Ruth is in a different section of the, old, of the Hebrew Old Testament in their order. And they're considered the former prophets. And these four books are written with Deuteronomy as the backdrop. Remember, the backdrop of all of this is God's covenant to Israel at Moab, which is made in Deuteronomy. And hopefully you remember that when we covered that book. And the backdrop of of these four books of God's covenant promises and his covenant warnings um, begin in Deuteronomy 4. And I'll just read a few verses from Deuteronomy 4. Uh, we read through Moses, When you father children and children's children and have grown old in the land, if you act corruptly by making a carved image in the form of anything and by doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God so as to provoke him to anger, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will soon utterly perish from the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. You will not live long in it, but will be utterly destroyed. And the Lord will scatter you among the peoples, and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord will drive you. And there you will serve gods of wood and stone, the work of human hands that neither see nor ear, hear, nor eat, nor smell. So everything that the, the writer of Kings wants 
his readers to know everything that came about in the days of the kings was foretold and forewarned in Deuteronomy and God's covenant at Moab with his people Israel as they're on the banks of the Jordan waiting to get in. And in fact, these same covenant stipulations are told to Solomon as well, which we read in our scripture reading this morning. In 1 Kings 9, Solomon is warned once again. In 9 verse 4, And as for you, if you will walk before me, as David your father walked, and with integrity of heart and uprightness, doing according to all that I have commanded you, and keeping my statutes and my rules, then I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever. As I promised David your father, saying, You shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. Right? We saw that in Second Samuel 7 last week when we learned about the promised Messiah. But then the Lord goes on to Solomon. But if you turn aside from following me, you and your children, and do not keep my commandments and my statutes that I have set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel from the land that I have given them. And the house that I have consecrated for my name, I will cast out of my sight. And Israel will become a proverb and a byword among all peoples. And this house will become a heap of ruins. Everyone passing by it will be astonished and will hiss And they will say, why has the Lord done thus to this land and to this house? Then they will say, because they abandoned the Lord their God, who brought their fathers out of the land of Egypt and laid hold on other gods and worshipped and served them. Therefore, the Lord has brought all this disaster on them. So Saul, David, Solomon, all the, the judges and the people before the days of the monarchy, they were all warned with the same words from Deuteronomy. Serve the Lord, follow his statutes, keep them with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and God will be with you. But if you forsake the Lord and worship other gods and serve them, the Lord will vomit you out of the land. Not only did they get that in Deuteronomy 4, but if you read Deuteronomy 28 and Deuteronomy 30, you get those same warnings as well, some of which are echoed in the Lord's uh, response to Solomon of being a a curse and a byword and, and so on and so forth. All the curses that come upon God's people, in fact, are found in Deuteronomy 4, Deuteronomy 28, and Deuteronomy 30. Yeah, You can find a link back to every one of them as you work along in Kings. So we would think then with Solomon that all would go well, right? Kings begins with Solomon rising to the throne. Uh, He is the son of David. Surely we're thinking 2 Samuel 7. Solomon is the promised one. That would come the son who would have the eternal kingdom. And Solomon rises up and the Lord And as the Lord raises him up, the Lord asks, Ask of me anything and I will give it to you. And what does Solomon say? He doesn't say, Give me, give me riches, give me power. He says, Give me wisdom. And we're like, Yes, this is, this is a king who gets it. And the Lord gives him that wisdom. He says, Because you asked for wisdom, not only will I give you wisdom, but I'll give you riches 
uh, beyond, you know, the, in my own words, beyond your wildest imagination. He's going he's gonna to make him unmind-blowingly rich and wealthy in addition to his wisdom that we are told will surpass all the nations and all the wise men of the earth. Surely Solomon will get it. But what happens? There's a key turning point in Kings, and it comes in chapter 11. In chapter 11, we find Solomon's Achilles heel, as it were, his love of foreign women. Let me read just a a few excerpts from chapter 11. We are told in 11.1 and following, Now the king Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women. These, by the way, are all the, all the nations that the Lord promised to cast out of the land of Canaan and warned Israel not to serve these gods. He loved the women of all these places. From the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people, You shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. A thousand women. A thousand women were united to Solomon of all of the pagan lands, and they turned his heart away from the Lord. And he built high places for them, all of these wicked and evil gods. The wisest man on earth could not keep faith with Yahweh. It's a hopeless situation. Because if Solomon couldn't do it, who could do it? And then we were told later in chapter 11, therefore the Lord raises up adversaries against Solomon. And that's the whole turning point of the whole monarchy from the days of the judges to David to Solomon. His love of foreign women who turns his heart after foreign gods becomes the downfall and the ruin of all that will come after Because of Solomon's sin, the Lord said he would tear the kingdom from him. While he would still leave Solomon a remnant for the sake of David, the kingdom would be torn. And after Solomon dies, the kingdom is divided. His son Rehoboam comes to the throne and is the exact opposite of his father. He acts like a fool and does not listen to wise counsel on how to govern all of the people. And therefore, Jeroboam the first, the son of Nebat, rises up and takes the northern ten tribes of Israel and makes a new kingdom, and he is their king. So now for the first time, God's people are divided between two kingdoms, the northern ten tribes and then Judah in the south. All right, and so we have two kings, and now we're going to read in Kings and go back and forth between the various kings uh, that followed after that tragic event. 
And what we see in the first king of Israel, Jeroboam, we see the core sin, and I noted that in your outline, in your worship folder, but the core sin that will be the means um, by which the Lord drives all of his people from the land. And you know what that core sin is? It was the removal of the centralization of worship. It was God's people saying, I will worship Yahweh my way. I will worship the Lord my way. We read in Kings chapter 12, so the king took counsel in verse 28. So the king took counsel and made two calves of gold. This is Jeroboam. And he said to the people, you have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods, O Israel who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. I mean, citing verbatim the golden calf incident, by the way. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And he set one in Bethel, and the other he put in Dan. Then this thing became a sin, for the people went as far as Dan to be before one. He also made temples on high places and appointed priests from among all the people, who were not of the Levites. And Jeroboam appointed a feast on the 15th day of the 18th month, like the feast that was in Judah, and he offered sacrifices on the altar. So he did in Bethel, sacrificing to the calves that he made. And he placed in Bethel the priests of the high places that he had made. He went up to the altar that he had made in Bethel on the 15th day in the 8th month, in the month that he had devised from his own heart. And he instituted a feast for the people of Israel and went up to the altar to make offerings. So Jeroboam, not wanting his people to return to Jerusalem and remember the promises of God and to unite again, builds uh, two temples, one in the far north in Dan and one in the far south in Bethel so that the Israelites in the northern kingdom could worship Yahweh there before the calves that he made and at the appointed times that he devised out of his own heart. I just want to pause right here for a moment and just say that today one of the chief sins in the church is when the church decides to worship the Lord its own way. It is shocking the kinds of things that you see in churches today in abandoning the preaching of the word for entertainment, for the dog and pony show, for rock bands and concerts, singing their own words and their own theology, um, having people up drawing paintings during the worship, um, images of God. I mean, all sorts of horrendous things are, are happening, if time could tell. I mean, I could tell you to go look at the... Uh, Bethel Church, for example, the the great uh, false teachers of the New Apostolic Reformation movement who pour glitter from the ceiling and, and claim that it's the Shekinah of glory filling the room. This stuff that we read here is alive and well. And then when you think about the church and Christians and all that we worship in this world and bow down to in addition to the Lord and the things we seek for entertainment... We're not that different from these guys. And this idolatry that Jeroboam initiates 
after Solomon in his turn to foreign gods. This is going to be known throughout the book of Kings as the way of Jeroboam. And you'll see 25 times it is repeated in one derivation or another of this phrase that, and he walked in the way of Jeroboam or he walked in the sin of Jeroboam. And Kings is filled with idolatry and pagan worship and grave evil. And all of it starts with Jeroboam, the first king of the divided king kingdom in Israel. All of this is a very real and practical illustration of Israel's rejection of God as king. Remember last week in Samuel, we saw that when they asked for a king, they were really rejecting God as king over them. 1 Samuel 8, 7, And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. But while they rejected God as king, God is still king. They did not dethrone Yahweh, and he is still seated on his throne in heaven, and he will keep his covenant besides all of the places in Kings where we are told the Lord did this, the Lord raised up, the Lord brought this, the Lord did that, we see two really glorious sections depicting God as king, as the king of kings. For example, 1 Kings 22, when the prophet Micaiah is speaking about evil king Ahab, and Micaiah said, Therefore hear the word of the Lord, I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the host of heaven standing beside him on his right hand and on his left. And the Lord said, Who will entice Ahab that he may go up and fall at Ramoth-Gilead? And one said one thing and another said another. Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord saying, I will entice him. And the Lord said to him, By what means? And he said, I will go out and will be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And he said, you are to entice him and you shall succeed. Go out and do so. Now therefore, behold, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of all these your prophets. The Lord has declared disaster for you. So we see this picture of the Lord on his throne and the host of heaven is there at his feet. And the Lord, even in bringing evil upon Ahab, is in absolute control of all of it. Giving permission and giving the decree of how Ahab, who is one of the most wicked kings that you read about in Kings, how he will be brought down. Another example of God being on his throne in in this book is in 2 Kings. 2 Kings 19, 15-19, this is in Hezekiah's prayer to the Lord. And he said, O Lord, the God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. And hear the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God, Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste the nations and their lands and have cast their gods into the fire. For they were not gods, but the the work of men's hands. 
wood and stone. Therefore they were destroyed. So now, O Lord our God, save us, please, for his hand, from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, O Lord, are God alone. So Kings is crystal clear that God is king. He is the king of kings. He is the one that takes down his own wicked leaders. And he's also the one who will deliver his righteous kings from destruction. As the Lord here answers Hezekiah's prayer. And we read after Hezekiah prays this to the Lord. One of the only good kings in Judah in its entire history And we read in 2 Kings 19.34, The Lord says, I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. And that night the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 of the Assyrians in their camp. And when people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went home and lived in Nineveh. And as he was worshiping in the house of Nishrach, his god, Adramalek and Sharazer, his son, struck him down with the sword and escaped into the land of Ararat. God doesn't need even his own armies of Israel to do anything. He can strike them down at his will because he is the king of kings. And the one true God. And God will judge and God will save according to his good pleasure. But yet in Kings, you read the whole account. I would encourage you to do that. It's a long account. But yet despite of all of God's patience with wicked and evil kings, his Judah and Israel continue to rebel against him. You know that out of each, uh, each of the kingdoms had 19 kings. And out of Israel's 19 kings, how many do you think were good? Were said they're good. Zero. Only one had a mixed review, Jehu. He had, he had a mixed review. So we might say only one was not completely evil, but even he turns from the Lord in, in quite an evil way as well. So the history of Israel's kings is not so good. Then how about Judah? They had 19 kings as well in this, in this period of the divided kingdom. And only four were good. Only four. And the high point was Josiah in 2 Kings 23. And I don't have time to, to dig into that this morning. But if you want to understand the height of Judah's evil... Read Josiah's reforms, which is the high point of all the kings, even of David. The the text says that Josiah was even better than David. There was no king like him before or after. And look at all that Josiah removes out of the land of Judah. Wicked and horrible abominations. And in that passage in chapter 23, you both see the height of the kingdom and the nadir of the kingdom, the, the lowest ebb of Judah and all that they practiced. And so the Lord sent prophets and prophets to warn him 
to warn the nations, to warn Judah and Israel, and including Elijah and Elisha. And Kings devotes big sections to both Elijah's ministry and Elisha's ministry, but they would not listen. And so God's patience runs out. God's patience runs out. So then we come into 2 Kings 17, and Israel falls to the Assyrian Empire. 722 BC, that's a good date to remember the fall of Israel. 722 BC, and the Assyrian Empire goes down. Sorry, Israel goes down because of the Assyrian Empire. Like I said before, these, uh, this was a wicked and evil empire that the Lord used as his instrument to punish his people. And in 2 Kings 17, verse 7 and following, we're given the reason why the Lord used this wicked empire to punish Israel. And I'll read that for you. This is where at the very end of Kings we're given really the reasons for all of this. And this occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and had feared other gods and walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel and in the customs that the kings of Israel had practiced. And the people of Israel did secretly against the Lord their God things that were not right. They built for themselves high places in all their towns from the watchtower to fortified city. They set up for themselves pillars and ashram on every hill and under every green tree. And there they made offerings on all the high places as the nations did whom the Lord carried away before them. And they did wicked things, provoking the Lord to anger. And they served idols, of which the Lord had said to them, You shall not do this. Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah by every prophet and every seer, saying, Turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes in accordance with all the law that I commanded your fathers and that I sent to you by my servants the prophets. But they would not listen. But they were stubborn, as their fathers had been, who did not believe in the Lord their God. They despised his statutes and his covenant that he made with their fathers and the warnings that he gave them. They went after false idols and became false. And they followed the nations that were around them, concerning whom the Lord had commanded that they should not do like them, And they abandoned all the commandments of the Lord their God and made for themselves metal images of two calves. And they made an Asherah and worshipped all the host of heaven and served Baal. And they burned their sons and their daughters as offerings and used divination and omens and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. Therefore the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them out of his sight. None was left but the tribe of Judah only. Judah also did not keep the commandments of the Lord their God, but walked in the customs that Israel had introduced. 
And the Lord rejected all the descendants of Israel and afflicted them and gave them into the hand of plunderers until he cast them out of his sight. When he had torn Israel from the house of David, they made Jeroboam the son of Nebat king. And Jeroboam drove Israel from following the Lord and made them commit great sin. The people of Israel walked in all the sins that Jeroboam did. They did not depart from them until the Lord removed Israel out of his sight, as he had spoken by all the servants, the prophets. So Israel was exiled from their own land to Assyria until this day. And we see these phrases, by the way, until this day, which give a clue to us that this was written in the days of the exile. To this day, Israel is scattered. So God gave Israel all the warning they ever could have. And beyond the written word and the law of Moses, he gave them seers and prophets to warn them time and time again. And yet they rebelled. They did not believe in the Lord. And they despised his, his statutes. And they became like the world and whored after false gods. After the fall of Israel, we, we wonder, well, perhaps this will be the warning to Judah to remain faithful. And in fact, uh, in the, the section after the fall of Israel, we do see glimmers of hope in the kings of Hezekiah and of Josiah. But unfortunately, between those two kings, we have more great and evil kings. Uh, and Manasseh, the son of Hezekiah, is particularly wicked. And we will learn that when Judah is uh, exiled from the land, it's because of the sins of Manasseh, which was really just uh, an uh, an exaggerated practice of all that Judah had already been doing before. So in uh, the year 586 B.C., Judah is exiled. So that's another date. I've given you 722 for the fall of Israel under the Assyrians. In 586, Judah falls and is exiled by the Babylonians. So the Babylonian Empire is the empire that came in and destroyed the Assyrian Empire. So during this, this period of Israel, we have these different empires competing for supremacy in the, in the east. And so now Babylon is there just as wicked as the Assyrians, if not more. And we are given, again, as, as we are given a reason for Israel's fall in 2 Kings 17, now we're given the reason for Judah's fall in 2 Kings 24, verses 2 to 4. And the Lord sent against him bands of the Chaldeans, and bands of the Syrians, and bands of the Moabites, and bands of the Ammonites, and sent them against Judah to destroy it. According to the word of the Lord, that he spoke by his servants, the prophets. Surely this came upon Judah at the command of the Lord to remove them out of his sight for the sins of Manasseh, according to all that he had done, and also for the innocent blood that he had shed. 
for he filled Jerusalem with innocent blood, and the Lord would not pardon. So I've asked at the beginning, and I'll ask again, has God failed Israel? Did he fail his people? No, he has not failed. He is simply maintaining his covenant faithfulness. God warned time and time again, and God made good. He's not like the bad parent or the bad teacher or the bad uh, authority figure or government leader who says, we're going to do this if you do that, and then they do that and you don't do it. I will refrain from making any comments (laughs) on illustrations that come to mind um, on that point, but I can think of a number. But no, God said, I'm going to do this, and he did it. He was consistent. And while that faithfulness of Yahweh meant horrendous punishment for Israel and for Judah, it's also that same faithfulness that is the eternal hope of God's people, both in the exile in Babylon and for us today. So I want to end by talking about that hope that we have in God's faithfulness to always keep his word. And that's what the writer of Kings wants us to see. It's what, it's what we need to see. It's what the New Testament wants us to see as well. Despite this horrendous punishment that comes on Israel and Judah, Second Kings, or the book of Kings, so First and Second Kings are one book. I don't know if I've said that. They're one book originally, but it's too big to keep on one scroll. That's why they were divided between First and Second Kings. But it's one book. Kings ends with a glimmer of hope, with the the restoration and the release from captivity of the last king of Judah in this day. We read in 2 Kings 25, 27 and following, And in the 37th year of the exile of Jehoiachin, king of Judah, in the 12th month on the 27th day of the month, evil Merodach, king of Babylon, in the year that he began to reign, graciously freed Jehoiachin, king of Judah, from prison. And he spoke kindly to him and gave him a seat above the seats of the kings who were with him in Babylon. So Jehoiachin put off his prison garments. And every day of his life, he dined regularly at the king's table. And for his allowance, a regular allowance was given him by the king according to his daily needs as long as he lived. So hope remains in exile. There still is a man of David alive to continue the promise. And as we come to the pages of the New Testament, as we, as we looked at in depth last week, so I won't do that again, but we see that the hope is not going to be in some earthly king that comes from David's line, but from the God-man, Jesus Christ. Truly the King of Kings. God must be King of His people, and the only hope for us is when God is King. And not when we look to any other ruler. And while we're still waiting now, God is still working out his plan today. You know, I think of 
passages in the New Testament where the the apostles are writing to encourage the church. And I think, for example, of Ephesians chapter 1, that glorious opening section of Ephesians. And we have this, this glorious glimpse of God's sovereign plan. It's the word oikonomy, or economy, oikonomias, his plan. You know, we talk about household economy, keeping the budget and the plan. God has a economy for the ages. And that's what Ephesians is all about. I'm looking forward to getting to that book with you. But we read in Ephesians 1, 7, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One, as a economy, a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. So that same faithfulness that caused the Lord to punish his wicked people is the same faithfulness that maintained his promise to David and to Israel that a Messiah would come. And when Jesus came, that was part of God's economy for all time. To unite all things in heaven and on earth. So has God failed No, by no means. You know, in Romans 9, which we read as our scripture reading today, that's another place where people are wondering, did God fail? If if the gospel is true, then how come the Israelites are still rejecting Jesus, their Messiah? If the gospel is true, why are they rejecting the Messiah in large measure? Paul, of course, was a Jew, and the the disciples were Jews, and they didn't reject the Lord, uh, except for Judas, of course. But in large measure, the Jews did not return. But what does Paul say in Romans 9? He says, it is not as though the word of God has failed. It's the same question. Did God fail? By no means. Paul says, it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not who... Not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac your offspring shall be named. By the way, even in Kings, a remnant is promised. God says, I have reserved 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. We have this idea of a remnant. The true people of God will be a remnant from the visible people of God. And Paul goes on, What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us upon whom he has called not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. So God has not failed even by not bringing all of Judah and Israel back because not all were God's people. Not all were truly the children of Abraham. And God, my friends, is still the king today. And even in our days of suffering, he is still sovereign over these things. Remember, I began this message by asking you, what are your worries? What are your struggles? What are the anxieties that plague your heart and mind. And remember that God is king 
and he is in control of everything. So you can release those worries to him because he is the sovereign king of kings. Peter tells the suffering church in 1 Peter 4.19, Therefore let those who suffer according to God's will. He's saying let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. The king of kings, the king of nature and the king of nations is still on his throne today working his will out among us. And time does not suffice to show the many examples in kings that demonstrate that God is absolutely sovereign over nature and nations, like the lion that kills the prophet and the drought in the days of Ahab and the raising of the dead through Elijah and Elisha, for example. But God is sovereign over even our suffering. And even in these days, while we wait and we suffer according to our will, We wait with hope because he will come again to judge the living and the dead. So we confess in our confession. And he will come to establish his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. I think of those glorious passages in Revelation 19. And I'll end with this. Then I saw heaven open and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. And on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them... With a rod of iron, he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Thus comes the fulfillment of that great proclamation of the seventh angel in Revelation 11. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. So will God fail us? By no means. Never. He is the King of Kings. All nations work according to his bidding. That means that you have nothing to fear in the days of your exile. We as the church have nothing to fear. You as God's people have nothing to fear in your homes, in your workplaces, wherever in this world the Lord may lead you. You have nothing to fear. He may discipline you, but he will never forsake you. And that is our faith, and that is our hope. Amen. Let's pray.